0: Join us September 30th through October 2nd for the 26th annual Zero Mental Health Symposium. The topic of this year's symposium couldn't be more timely as we look at healing from historical trauma. This is the first year we are hosting the event virtually and the best part is the cost to attend is reduced and full conference registration is only $150 if you register before August 22nd. There are discounts available for students and groups. Learn more about the symposium and register today at zerosymposium.org.
1: The more we lift each other, that is the key. It's really the bottom line in, in healing as communities. Healing historical trauma is going to happen in community.
0: You're listening to The Mental Health Download from the nonprofit Mental Health Association Oklahoma. I'm Christy Sturgill, the director of marketing for the association. And on today's episode, our special guest is Dr. Daryl Tonema. He will be the keynote speaker at the virtual Zero Mental Health Symposium coming up September 30th through October 2nd. The theme this year is healing from historical trauma, and you can register for the symposium today at zerosymposium.org. Dr. Tonoma is a health psychologist acclaimed for his work in diabetes and his efforts in health, education, wellness, and entertainment. He has served on numerous state and national boards addressing disparities in education and healthcare among the Native community, including the Oklahoma Cancer Network, the Cherokee Cancer Coalition, the Oklahoma Intertribal Diabetes Coalition, the Oklahoma Intertribal Cancer Coalition, and the United National Intertribal Youth Diabetes Initiative. He is also the owner of Tonoma Consulting Group, an organization dedicated to increasing wellness in Native communities. Let's get the conversation started. The mental health download starts now. So, Dr. Tonema, thank you so much for being on the Mental Health Download today. We're excited to hear your keynote presentation at the Zero Mental Health Symposium. And this year, our symposium theme is Healing from Historical Trauma. Can you tell me what comes to mind when you hear the words historical trauma? And how does that differ from just regular trauma? Well,
1: historical trauma is... has become much more prominent in the last 10 to 15 years. The research kind of bloomed or blossomed out of the survivors of the Holocaust. And there were certain behaviors that were kind of became very consistent and, and universal. And the native population has had similar things happen and have had very similar behaviors. And the historical part of it is that it's intergenerational and there's modes of transmission from biology to psychology to sociology that perpetuate it. And I think we're to a season now in in understanding its behaviors in, in, in the mind and the brain and the body that we can equip our people with tools that that help them develop sovereignty over the sense of overwhelm and that we can learn to create safe environments that The epigenetic part doesn't have to be activated because we become empowered and we we turn the ship and we create better environments for our young people. And it's really an exciting season to be in this in this line of work.
0: I'm a citizen of the Cherokee Nation. You say there's like these behaviors that gets passed down. What are some of these behaviors that people who are native or people who might have historical trauma? What are those behaviors they need to be aware of in themselves as potential trauma that they need to consider in their own path to to healing? Like, what do what do you even look for that would be considered behaviors related to historical trauma?
1: Well. Maybe I won't even think that the behaviors are necessarily handed down. The behaviors are a symptom of of something internal, an internal sense of overwhelm because our bodies get prepared for survival and my whole autonomic system lights up, my my midbrain lights up for the purposes of survival because if I grew up in in a toxic environment or a tough environment, I need that to survive. But what happens is those things don't translate well outside of my home. So I go to school and I get diagnosed with ADHD or a learning disability because the, the same tools I work in my home, my hyperactivity, my constant motion, my constriction are very functional at home, but I go to school and it's not as functional. And then I grow up starting with these labels, which can in, which lead to other behaviors, which can lead to depression, which stresses, anxieties, things like that. And then I, when I get older, I have different tools to address this sense of overwhelm that's stored in me. Then you see, then we talk about behaviors. And so when I'm, when I'm a baby, my tools for addressing the sense of overwhelm could be crying or constriction or never crying. When I get older and get to school, it's sitting silently suffering at my desk or screaming under the table. But when I get to be a teenager, I have more access to the opposite sex or to drinking or smoking something in the house, which is kind of the root of addiction and because that just grows in me. And it's, you can look at the 30 year old and say, well, that's just a crazy 30 year old. And it's very short sighted and minimalistic thinking because there's much more to it. And the tools that help turn the tide for folks are very different than the ones that we've been using. I am totally down with prayer and the spirit and in our cultures and, and, and empowering. I'm totally into that. And we need to tap more into that. I also. Totally down with the, the research that I've that read and applied and been trained on and practiced myself. That I've seen great things happen with people when they start to understand the somatic, the, the messages the body gives you. This sense of overwhelm, what is it rooted in? Because the event is over, and it may not even have been an event. It may be something that was epigenetic that I don't have cognitive access to, but I do have access to the sense of overwhelm that is stored in me. And what tools do I have to address that then? And that's a whole different. It's, it's the same toolbox, but it has more depth and breadth to it.
0: I was listening to one of your talks last night and one of the things and you just reminded me of one of your points that I want you to maybe share a little more on is how unimportant your stories are to addressing the trauma that you might be coping with. And you shared this with what I would assume would be like a, a room of practitioners in some capacity. But in in my department, the marketing department, we're all about like, oh, you, you know, we tell stories. But you said something there that was that was impactful to me was like your your stories don't have to be shared for you to be able to start addressing the trauma. Because there's sometimes what I want you to talk about is the fact that sometimes you have no language for what you're experiencing. How do people start addressing some of these behaviors or, or trauma or experiences or feelings when they have no words for them?
1: My dissertation was on storytelling.
0: <laughs> that's awesome.
1: And I think there's, there's, there's power in narrative. But if that's the first thing that I approach with somebody who's in trauma, it, it may be like throwing a pee at a brick wall because trauma lives in a very different part of the brain. And you know that if you have a friend who has anxiety attacks or in the middle of an anxiety attack, there's no talking to them. They're all about surviving that moment. And you're saying, why are you doing this? And they just wanna punch you in the throat because it's not, <laughs> they don't have access to that. So why am I trying to force that when they don't even have the capacity to do it? So if we did FMRI studies of people who are in go mode like that, the, the language, logic, relationship, centers of the brain just aren't lit. And what we're still trying to say, tell them story, tell them a story. And we know that them trying to, and they're just bawling. They can't get out. It. It's very frustrating for them. And it can be, be re-traumatizing for them. And so what we know about trauma, it lives way further back in the brain, in the survival centers of the brain, the mammalian and reptilian parts of the brain. And that's a whole different set of tools and it's more body-based. So what we call stress, we've, what we've labeled stress or overwhelm, is my heart pounding, my breathing shallow, I'm hot, my stomach is tight, my arms are tingly, and we label that stress. But what if I don't have any capacity to even talk about this? What if I don't even know why I'm having this? Because it's also not in the logic centers of the brain. People who have anxiety attacks, I'll talk with them, and 90% of them will say things like, I don't know why I have them. I have no idea why I have them. And Let's say we dig down with, with my cognitive behaviorism tool. I'm a cognitive behavioral psychologist. Let's say I dig down in that and they say, well, it's because of this. But they still have anxiety attacks. So we've labeled it. We know what it is. So why are you still having anxiety attacks? Because there's different parts of the brain. People from Vietnam, they know exactly why they're having They They saw things and they can describe what they were. And they still wake up screaming last night. And it's 50 years later. So it's a different type of work. There's a spot for narrative in it. But if it's my only tool or my primary tool is my cognitive behavioral tool, then I may be doing a disservice to the person. And really the bottom line is, regardless of the tool, if they're moving the needle, then that's great. That's what I want to have. I want them to feel better. And if we're using my cognitive behavioral tool and they're moving the needle and it's sustained, if they're healing, that's the difference. Dealing is different than healing. Healing is, it's, it's, I have mastery over this sense of overwhelm. That's healing. Yeah. Coping is basically, I'm avoiding the sense of overwhelm. I'm, I'm using a coping tool to not have to be near it. And I think about my three chocolate kids at home, and I want them to be strong <laughs> and powerful. And I want them to not say, I can cope with this. I want them to be able to punch it in the nose. I want them to feel sovereign over it. I want them to have mastery over it. And every person I see, I think, what if? What if that was my family member? What if that was my kid? Who would I want me to be, and what tools would I want me to have that help them in mastery, in sovereignty? And coping is—it's—it's it's a different, it's a more different cognitive tool—a way of avoiding it. And there's plenty of research on the understanding the somatic, the sensation base of it is the foundation for for trauma work. Not so much—not so much recalling the narrative but aligning, understanding the somatic base of it.
0: I love the way you word the sovereignty over Like I've never heard it expressed that way. And I feel like that's just a really interesting and powerful way to describe what you want to see in somebody healing from trauma. I I love that. Is there any particular statistic or research that you're excited to share with the symposium this year that maybe you've been working on recently?
1: I am neck deep in the neurology, uh, in Bessel Vanderkult's work, in Robert Scars' work. And, work. and the, you combine all these different insights from neurology and psychology and medicine and education. And they're all saying the same things is that trauma work is, is bottom up, not top down. And bottom up has a couple of different meanings it's the somatic which used to be called psychosomatic, which people just glom on psycho. There's something wrong with you mentally because you're having this. But really a somatic message is just as legit. It's just from a different location. But you have gut instincts. I had a gut feeling about that. What's that about? What does that mean? There's actually physiology behind that. And it's helping to protect you, to guide you. And so... I'm looking at all these folks' work and then applying my own work and seeing how we can create conversations and with, with each other as providers, as well as tools for the folks that we work with. That's really the bottom line for me. And, and the more I learn, the more research, and I've been doing it for 15 years now, and my mind is perpetually just being blown. <laughs> uh, and, it's, and every time I learn something new, I, I feel Inadequate. I think, man, I don't know enough, and it's very—it spurs me on because I think I need to know more. I need, to, and so it becomes almost distracting how much I feel like I need to learn more.
0: So you're learning all the time. You're speaking at events. You're coming to our symposium, but you actually do even more than that because you're working with patients and schools and communities and. So can you share a little bit about the other aspects of your work that you're, that you're doing and, and what do you like about that type of work?
1: I can't just educate. It's important <laughs> to, to connect this to the, 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 the audience, the people that, that are suffering. And so having them, having connected with, with going into schools and working with some of the, the, the students themselves, or I, I have uh, the telehealth, uh, we, I do telepsychology. And I have a team of psychiatry and psychology and LPC and master's level, even traditional healers. Wow. native on my team. And our, our goal is to, to reach out to the community and give them tools for sovereignty and to, for self-care. And, and ultimately, my goal is to work myself out of a job. That's, I want to be able to sit in my basement and play guitar and learn how to <laughs> That's kind of my, my ultimate goal. Um, because these the tools I want to have them to be connected to me. That's not sovereignty. If they're relying on me, that's not them being sovereign. I want them to have the tools that they can walk through daily lives and they feel uh, the amygdala picks up on something and they can feel it. I want them to have tools to address it in that moment. That's sovereignty. And, I, and, I, and just, So connecting with the, the people that I work with through Telepsych and the kids in schools and things like that. That's what I really want for them.
0: Just out of my own curiosity, what's a traditional healer in in the Native community? And who's the population? Is in my brain? I'm seeing maybe more like elders in the in the tribes that prefer that kind of communication or or work with with the with traditional healers. How, do you do you do that often with with your communities that you work in?
1: It's actually a broad range, depending on how the folks are raised. If they were raised more in their culture, they'll ask about traditional folks. So it's not just the elders. It's more of a worldview. And if that's where they get strength and power and healing, then we want to make sure they have access to that. Rather than having, it can be traumatizing, forcing them into this belief system, saying you have to do it this way. So it's important to have that range and giving them that option. And we tried to have people from different regions. It's hard to have a traditional healer on on call for us on every tribe, different regions. But then every time I every time I visit a community, I, I, I kind of ask around just to see if there's people that would be available for something like that.
0: That's so cool. I think that's really neat that that that's another tool sort of that you're you're offering some of the people you serve. How has COVID? affected the people you're working with regularly right now? What are you seeing in your communities as far as as the pandemic goes?
1: It comes up more as an inconvenience than as a perseveration. They're not saying this is awful, this and I hate this. They're, they're not saying things like that. But it's, it comes up and one of the concerns that that I'm kind of keeping my eye out for. Is trauma doesn't have to be the big event. It can be. It can be just chronic stress it can, that affects people differently. So e- even though people may, may be living their life as much as they can, there's there's a certain undercurrent going on everywhere, and things are different. And it's novel. It's new. And anything new is can cause stress, can cause anxiety. So I always I always check in about that. How, how are you doing with this? And I haven't, I've only had a couple of few people say that they feel pretty stressed about it, but that's a smaller percentage. But like I said, I want to be sure I keep an eye out for because of the, the chronicness of it. Yeah. You know, it, it could change people eventually.
0: Yeah. And it's very ambiguous and uncertain sometimes. And I'm sure, you know, it could affect jobs and, and work, you know, work life.
1: Initially, Uh, I thought it was really I I, I thought it was really interesting that many people said they were having bad dreams or strange dreams.
0: Yeah, I saw that. (laughs) Yeah, that is I did think that was really fascinating. Um, That was quite the trend, along with sourdough, everybody baking. We're like, we don't know what to do. So we're just going to make bread. You know, so you're a fellow Oklahoman. And and before we we work on, you know, winding down the conversation here. I personally hate tornadoes, which maybe makes me less Oklahoman. I don't stand outside. I'm like immediately in my closet. Like, I hope it doesn't come this way. But you were like, your house was hit by a tornado and you were like in the closet. What I liked about that, that story you told was, was it your wife that doesn't remember much of that event, but you do? (laughs) I think that's wild how like, events like that in our brains because there's like i always joke with people i'm like yeah there's like seasons of my life where i don't remember much of anything <laughs> and so so uh yeah so you were you were in a, an oklahoma tornado in your house
1: living back here in new york actually and <laughs> our house was uh destroyed and we thought well, let's not live here anymore and <laughs> we hadn't lived here in New York during our marriage and we thought, well, let's just go back there for a while. Yeah, um, Which was 10 years ago. But what's really cool about New York is I'm going to go home and my house will still be there. Yeah, There won't be a wind to come take it away from me. And we appreciate that. And plus, there's not snakes the size of my leg here in Niagara Falls. That's nice. And the memory thing, its ama- it's interesting about the memory thing because there's research on the amygdala and how it affects memory, particularly as it relates to the the event.
0: Yeah. So, so my question with that is, is there any, any relationship between traumatic events, like a tornado being in a tornado, and how you remember things and don't remember things? And derealization, which is a symptom that some people with anxiety experience, is there a relationship between, is your brain doing the same thing when you're experiencing derealization as it does if you're in a tornado? It's just the tornado's not happening over here if you're having the symptom as a part of anxiety. Yes.
1: So depersonalization, derealization, constriction, they're all kind of the same words to, to talk about the same thing. And really it's, it's the the brain protecting you because it's, not safe to be in there anymore in my body. It's not safe to be in here anymore, so it's just going to check out. And so let let that happen, and whatever occurs to it, I won't. I not have to experience that, and which was totally functional when you think about it. That's totally functional during a tornado or any yeah. list of abuses or a car accident. It's totally functional, but it becomes less functional when <laughs> that, that becomes the behavior. Yeah, so the pre- people are perpetually not present. Yeah, that's what becomes less the, the unhealthy part of that.
0: Yeah, I, I just, I, I was wondering if there was a relationship there between those, but I think, I think you guys were, you know, smart with the whole just leaving. We had a strong storm this week that was really loud and and boomy. and I remember like pulling up my Facebook app so I could go to Mike Collier on channel too and and because he he has like his own Facebook page where he'll post like live like weather updates and so I'm like if he's not reporting on this then it's fine (laughs) like I don't need to go crawl but if he's live then I'm just like oh no (laughs) things aren't going well (laughs) so but I'm glad you guys are okay and I think it's a very rational choice to be like and we're going to New York. One and out. So is there anything that you would hope information that you would hope the audience at the symposium walks away with after they listen to your keynote?
1: Um really just that looking at at the sense of overwhelm stored in us or our, our patients or our clients, kind of looking at it through a different lens, keeping all of our awesome current tools and just saying, well, what else can I add to this? To, to help them move the needle a little bit.
0: Really, we can't wait to, to have you. I know I'm personally looking forward to listening to your keynote, and I, I really like the way that you bring your culture into your work. You're a citizen of three tribes. What, what tribes are those? I, I
1: am. I'm Kiowa, Comanche, and Tuscarora. The Kiowa Comanches are from Oklahoma, and the Tuscaroras are one of the six nations of the Haudenosaunee, which more commonly the, the name is, is Iroquois, but are, for us, we're the Haudenosaunee, and we're Tuscarora's one of the six nations of the Haudenosaunee.
0: Awesome. So Daryl, is there any way that people can connect with you or the, the work that you're doing right now?
1: Yes, our, our website, the company for, for Telesec is called First Nations Telehealth Solutions. So it's fntelehealth.com is our website, fntelehealth.com. And that kind of just tells what we're doing and, and uh, who we're who we involved with.
0: So thank you for being here with us today. If we could just close out with uh, you sharing just a bit of wisdom with our audience that you want them to incorporate into their life, maybe after hearing our conversation.
1: Healing uh, occurs in community, and it doesn't occur in isolation. The neural pathway for healing in the brain is paired with the neural pathway for being social. And so the more we connect with each other, the more we make each other feel safe, the more we lift each other. That is the key. It's really the bottom line in, in healing as communities. Healing historical trauma is going to happen in community.